Go ahead and take a seat and welcome back from Revival. How do you feel? That's better than I expected, honestly. So. <laughs> I had to make a decision this last, I think it was a Thursday night. There were three items in front of me and I had to pick two of them. There was peanut butter, jelly, and then this marshmallow sauce type thing. And someone said, this marshmallow sauce will change your life. And so I followed their lead. And I put the peanut butter on, which was, it was close to, close to peanut butter. It wasn't crunchy, so it was anathema, but I used it anyway. The, peanut, the smooth peanut butter was applied to the first piece of bread, and then this thick marshmallow. Do you know what I'm talking about, the marshmallow stuff? I, I, put, I put them together, and then I took the first bite, and nothing happened. My life was not changed. I was sad that I didn't put jelly and I contemplated throwing it away, but I kept it anyway because I had to live with the decisions of my con- uh, the consequences of my decisions. So I lived, I, I died. I'm here to tell the story. There are some decisions in your life that will be easy and you'll be grateful that you made them. There are some decisions in your life that will be a lot harder uh, to discern. And that's partly what the sermon is meant to do for you. One of the easiest decisions of my life, also consequently one of the biggest, was actually getting married to my beloved bride. That was July 12th, 2000, and hold on a second, eight. Well, it takes me time. I have to think about it. I have to think about it. I didn't forget. I just have to think about it. I have to do some math. 2008. Yeah, when I, when I met Kristen, it was, it was a piece of cake. Like I, I, we met on a mission trip to Guatemala, Guatemala uh, Costa Rica, Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Um, we went there together. And I, I, like, it was one of those things where I wasn't attracted to her initially, where it's like, oh, she looks hot kind of thing. It was more... Later during the mission trip where I'm like, man, she's like, she's godly and she serves a lot. And then I'm like, man, she's pretty cute. (laughs) It was only after I saw these things about her that just made it a piece of cake for me to say, you know, I want to pursue this girl. Um, I had to go through that boyfriend of hers, but I think eventually (laughs) they weren't married. (laughs) That's all right. Do as I say, not as I do. But I've honestly taken longer to think about some decisions like how much RAM to get in my computer, <laughs> what kind of car to buy, because this one was an easy question for me. I, was, I, knew, I knew I wanted to be with her, and it was, um, there was a lot of things. Not to say that that was the best way to, to decide. It just made it was easy for me. There are questions that are coming up in your life, and sometimes very soon, like the college, you know, the boyfriend or girlfriend you're going to date, uh, uh, what kind of car you're going to buy. And so I want to provide you five clarifying questions to ask yourself when you don't know what to do. You have some decisions to make, and you're not sure how to go about making those decisions. Well, what we're going to do today is a little different than what I normally do. You know, I give you an imperative. Do this, don't do that, think this way, believe that. Today, I'm going to give you questions. And so it's going to feel different than maybe some of the sermons, but I think it's going to be helpful for you. We're going to look at Psalm 20 together, and we're going to say, okay, how do we use a lens of Psalm 25 to view decisions that are coming our way? How do I make grown-up decisions when the Bible doesn't tell you, buy a Honda Civic, or buy, you know, buy a Kia, whatever they are, or, you know, marry um, Anne instead of Daphne, or sorry, Daphne, the name came to mind. (laughs) I was trying to think of a name that wasn't, sorry. (laughs) So, How do I make decisions when the Bible doesn't tell me explicitly, do this, don't do that? 
That's what I want to help you with today. And here's the connection if you're a new believer and you profess faith in Christ this last week. There are some plain, same old, same old stuff that's, that's available to us in Scripture that will always be the same. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today isn't just uh, confined to the realm of decision-making. It's really confined to the realm of all of Christian life. How do I live my life in a way that pleases God? This is it. This is exactly the template that you need to follow when it comes to, to being a, a child of God, to living the life that you've been called to live. And it's also helpful when you're making hard decisions. So without further ado, let's turn to Psalm chapter 25. If you haven't done that already, the first thing about this Psalm is that it's a Psalm of David. You'll see at the very top there. And what it tells us about this Psalm is that this is coming from some part of David's life. We don't know which part and he doesn't tell us, but we can rightly assume that this Psalm, uh, it covers a lot of topics. It's probably a Psalm about all of his life. Uh, there, there's always been times in David's life when they were good things. And there's been times in his life when there were bad things. And sometimes they happened around the same time. So this Psalm 25 is a psalm of life, a psalm of looking at the whole of life and saying, God, here's what I need from you. On top of that, this psalm is also an acrostic. So A, you know, do this. B, believe that. C, confess this. D, determine that. That's what he's doing here, except he's doing it in Hebrew. So just fun to know. That's kind of how he designed it here. But Psalm 25, really, again, a psalm of life. That's what we're looking at here. A song asking for guidance, for protection, for forgiveness, a little this, little that, uh, kind of like a a hodgepodge soup. He's throwing everything in there, which leads me to believe this is a all-life psalm. So let's look at Psalm 25, starting with verses 1 and 2. And here's how he starts. And this is brilliant. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame and let not my enemies exult over me. Okay. The first way this psalm starts out is really one of the first and most important pieces of making a good decision. He starts off recognizing, Lord, it's to you I lift up my what? Soul. And soul is another way for him to say, Lord, my entire life, I'm giving it to you, God. I don't, I don't exist in and of myself. I'm looking to you. I'm looking toward you. You're the one whom my whole life is wrapped up in. And in fact, to, oh my God, in you I trust. I'm not trusting my intelligence, my good looks, uh, the fact that I'm wise and I've been ruling and reigning for so long. I'm not trusting in my advisors. I'm trusting you, oh God. That's the ver very first and most important thing about my life. And then he says, God, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult, uh, boast over me is what he's saying. One of the first and most important things about making a decision is found in verse one and this first part of verse two. It's looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, you are the one I'm, I'm about. This is what my life is all about. If you've made a profession of faith in Christ, I'm all about you. And I know that you're about making me more like you. All of my life is about you. So the first thing, the first question you need to ask yourself one is, are you seeking God's glory first? You have to show me that early. Come on. Tustin. Are you seeking God's glory first? At Revival, some of you counted the cost and you said, Lord, I know that sometimes following you means I may have to skip this job or leave these friends or, or dress differently or do something, uh, something uh, dramatically differently than what I've been doing up to this point. And, and that's really what this is about. Seeking God's glory first means putting his life first and foremost in your life. Here's what it doesn't mean. I need to clarify this. Seeking God's glory first does not mean that you can't try out for the starring role in the next musical production. It might mean, though, if that production is counter to everything you stand for, you say, I'm not even going to be in the show in the first place. Doesn't mean you can't be the star. If you're doing Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, maybe you will go for Joseph and you get the, you get the role. Uh, something I think Matt Duplissy might do. It's kind of one of those things. It, if you go for that, great, praise God. You can do that to God's glory. 
It doesn't mean that you can't dress attractively. And, and, and people say, man, you, you're a schnazzy dresser. Have any of you seen Pastor PJ? I mean, come on, right? There are, <laughs> wow, that got an applause. Um, there, there are a lot of things that this doesn't mean. Living for God's glory first, when you're making a big decision, doesn't mean you can't do things that are, are high up or important roles. I mean, even in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, anyone who desires to be a pastor, the leader of God's church, he desires a noble thing. That's not bad. Some of you guys might say, I want to be a leader in a company. I want to be a CEO. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to do something great and amazing. I want to be the president. Um, I want to be the first female president, maybe. Whatever it is that you're wanting to do, it doesn't mean that your ambitions have to be curtailed and then given up. It just means that whatever your ambitions are, they are done for his glory. Everything is about bringing glory to your maker, your creator. And now for many of you, your savior. Some of you mean, okay, does that mean I can't apply to Yale or Harvard or some Ivy League? You know, I've got great grades. I've done all the classes. I've done all the extracurriculars. Here's the short answer. Again, no. It means, it means you can, in fact. I, here, here's what I would wager. If you're brilliant, no, 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 let me take that back because some of you would disqualify yourself on that statement. If you have a functioning brain, and pretty much everybody, right? <laughs> pretty much everybody. If you have a functioning brain, you are obligated. Here, that's a strong word. You're obligated to use your brain to its greatest possible potential for God's glory. So if that means for you, you should, you're really good at mathematics and some people are saying, man, you're just so sharp. Mathematics are your language. It's like you're born speaking algebra. You should go and do fill in the blank. Maybe you have a great teacher who's really physics-minded and says, hey, you should do physics for a living or whatever it is. Now, your responsibility is to use whatever gifts, inclinations, talents, mind, your brain cells, use them for God's glory. So when you go to school to a few months, because <laughs> uh, you're not at school tomorrow, some of you, now, when you go back to school in the fall, here's what I can say is biblically warranted. You should be working seriously hard at using your brain to the greatest possible potential that God has given you. If you have a potential for a 10 and you're only working at a four, guess what? You're six degrees of sin there. You understand what I'm saying? It's the same thing when it comes to, you know, physical. I mean, and this one gets a little more challenging, but some of you guys are really gifted athletically. And some of you say, well, you know, there's a conflict here. You know, I'm gifted athletically and I'm really good at this and there's potential for me to go to a scholarship with this. Should I do this? Um, can, can I do this when this is going to cost me so much? Here's a short answer. I think you can do athletics with the glory of God. And one of my biggest examples of that is the Tebow dude. Uh, I, he does it to God's glory. He, he's, he's popular and he puts face paint that says John 3.16. Not that you have to do that, you understand. But really, the question here is, can I glorify God in whatever my chosen field is? Now, here's also what I know about that Tebow character. He also prioritizes his church. He prioritizes God's word. He doesn't compromise in areas where, he, where, where, where are most essential. And that's the thing for you too. If you're a great athlete and you, you're really good at squash or chess or whatever. Uh, maybe you want, to be, you want to be the next chess grandmaster. Okay, okay. Do that to the glory of God, which means that everything that you're doing, you're doing with a mind for, does this glorify my maker? And if so, how? In your own mind, you need to be convinced about that. You need to realize that you, know, you can do so much for God's glory, but it does mean 1 Corinthians 10 31, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And Paul mentioned some mundane things there. You're eating. How many of you guys have eaten a double-double to the glory of God? I have. <laughs> I thank God every time I bite into one of those bad boys. Whether you drink, he says, do that to the glory of God. 
Um, and of course, the context is he's, about talk, he's talking about food sacrifice to idols. But he's saying that really everything that you do, all of your life is wrapped up in doing it for the glory of God. You know, your, your workouts in the morning or the afternoon, whenever you work out, you have to work out for football or maybe you're just doing it for fun. You do that to the glory of God. God gave you a body to exercise. And this is the beauty of the Christian faith. We don't throw your body away and say, it's not a big deal. Stop focusing on those physical things. Only focus on spiritual. It's saying about your life, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Everything is about you. I exercise so I can have a sharp mind and study your word better. I eat this way so that I can honor you with my life. To you, God, be the glory and power and praise. Seeking God's will first means putting God's priorities first. And this is step number one. Whatever decision you're about to make, who you're going to date, marry, school you're going to go to, the classes you're going to take, the activities you're going to participate in, step number one, am I seeking God's glory first? Or, here's the, here's the alternative, am I seeking my own? Really, that's the, that's the alternative. Am I seeking my own glory for this? And sometimes, let me just be honest with you guys, this, this is a hard thing to discern. Some of us don't know what we, we don't understand the complexities of the human heart. Uh, but this is where good counsel is helpful, helping them, uh, them helping you to discern, okay, what does this mean? What am I looking for? What am I wanting out of this? Putting God's priorities first. That's what it means. So step number one, are you seeking God's glory first? Of course, if the answer is no to that, then uh, that means start back, go, go to jail and start back at go, I guess, and think this through. Okay, can I do this to the glory of God first? Verse three, he continues on. Again, we're looking at a psalm of life here. He says, Indeed, certainly, truly, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Wanton. It's not about Chinese food. It's about the kind of thing here that's, you know, it's uh, deliberately, like violently. They're treacherous. They're, they're, they're conceiving evil all the time. And they're all about that. He's saying those guys, people who are doing evil, they're going to be ashamed. He says, but none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Now, ask yourself this question. What does it mean to wait for God? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? What does that actually look like? And I would, I, would, I would give to you and offer you this, that to wait on God is to do one of the hardest things that human beings can possibly imagine to do. And here's what it is. It's not physically sitting down and waiting, although this is a big part of it. It's actually waiting on God in prayer. Question two, to discern some really massive questions in your life, are you waiting on God in prayer? There are a few things that feel more unproductive and feel more challenging to our overactive brains, especially when your brain is conditioned by social media and by the flashiness of all these TikToks that are fun and like 30 seconds long. It's hard to sit and wait on God. By the way, did you guys see my wife's TikTok? She's, she's legit. She's legit. She did that cowboy song. It's on, my, it's on my TikTok, so I took credit for that. While she was pregnant. Are you waiting on God in prayer? This is one of the hardest things for the Christian life, but even this is one of the most powerful things of the Christian life. I was talking to Pastor Lucas, and I was sitting in one of the, I was sitting in the hospitality room this week talking to him about revival, and we're just celebrating really God's grace and his glory, people getting saved left and right. We're just thinking, what? what's different this year? What? I mean, we didn't, do, we didn't do the big band thing. We didn't do this, you know, a fiesta on Tuesday. We just did so much less comparatively, and yet God did so much more. What's the difference? And I, I had nothing to say, but I think we prayed a lot more for this one. I, I think that's the only ingredient in the salsa that was much more present than years past. And look what God did. I don't know if you heard me in the main announcements. There are 74 of you total that profess faith in Christ 74. 
I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, God deserves a clap for that. God can do in 30 minutes what we could never do in 30 lifetimes. So when you take 30 minutes to pray, you might feel like this is boring and hard and I just can't stay focused. It is worth laboring in prayer for that. You might have read in our DBR this week, Psalm 33, verses 16 through 19. I love this. He says, the king is not saved by his great army. That means if you have incredible resources, doesn't matter. The king is not saved by those. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength, even though that warrior has trained, he's prepared, he's probably done lots of physical exercises. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue so I love what the psalmist is doing here. He's setting up this incredible army, this well-prepared, buff, you know, super resourceful army that has everything that they could possibly need to win the victory. But in verse 19, again, this is Psalm 33, and verse 18, rather, he says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who, get this, fear him, on those whose hope is in his steadfast love that he may, God may, deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. This is what it means to wait on God in prayer, to trust that your resources are not enough and instead to trust the resources of the God who's always enough. This is one of the hard things. Now, again, I'm going back to the, the initial profession of faith for those of you guys who just got saved. Prayer is going to be principally key to the rest of your eternal life. You, you, we're going to be communing with God for the rest of our existence, but in this life, it's especially important. If you got saved this week, praise God. You need to start praying and don't stop. Does that mean it's going to be easy? Christians in the room, is it going to be easy? No. In fact, all of all the spiritual realm conspires against you so that you don't pray. Because here's the thing, Here, here's what the enemy knows that you and I don't know as well. Prayer works. God has ordained prayer to be used to accomplish his means in this world. And so he'll do everything he can to stop you from doing that. Feeling like a Netflix binge? Go for it. Easy, right? But you want to spend 15 minutes in prayer? Notice how everything in your world is like, ah, oh, I got this to do and that to do, and mom's telling me to do chores, and I, got, I finally remember to do that other thing. Everything in your world works against you praying, which tells you it's something you should do. Not, not to mention, the Bible tells you it's something you should do. One of my favorite authors on prayer says, the real and obvious test of a genuine work of God is the prevalence of the spirit of prayer. We often in, in, our, in, our, in our church talk about the, the, the Bible itself as being one of the evidences. And it's true. You know, we read the Bible, we love the Bible, but it's, it's, like, uh, it's, it's like having a a one-way conversation. If you're only in the Bible and you're not praying, it's having a one-way conversation. Tell me, what, what relationships in your life are really good that are only one way? If you, if you have an SO and you go out with her and, and you're talking, it's all you talking and all she's doing is just smiling at you. Not even like nodding, just, you know, just smiling awkwardly at you. And then you're like, okay, well, what do you think about that? And then nothing, just smiling at this is weird. <laughs> Taking you home now, you know? <laughs> That's not a relationship. And I know some of you know what I'm talking about when it comes to, okay, let me be gentle about this. Some of you guys feel like your parents never listen and only talk, right? They, they talk to you. They tell you what you need to do. They, they're not listening to what you're saying. And so you feel like it's a one-sided conversation because all it ever is is them telling you what to do and you having to do what they say because they're your authorities, they're your parents, and so you do it. But you feel like, man, this is not a relationship. I get that. And I think that's what God gets too. 
God wants to speak with you, but he also invites you into relationship with him, and prayer is how we do that. If you want to make good decisions, one of the best things you can do is just spend a ton of time saying, God, do you want me to do this? God, give me wisdom. God, help me understand this. God, give me the, the, the discretion I need. Take God's word and pray it back to him. Say, God, your word says that indeed none who wait for you shall be put to shame, and God, I don't want to make a foolish decision. Help me not to be put to shame. This is the kind of thing where you say, Lord, should I date her? Is that a good idea for me? Should I buy this car that will strap me with a, a, you know, a car payment for the next 10 years? Should I go to this school where there are no good churches nearby? That's actually one of the conversations that I have, and I, I hate that conversation. It's like, oh, I got accepted to this massively great school that's really great for my, for my major. And then I say, well, what churches are you looking into? Well, yeah, I'll get to it. I don't, I don't know. That's step number one, young person. You get accepted to Yale or Harvard or some other awesome school that's great for your major. One of the questions you should be asking is, Lord, can you help me find a good church before I offer my acceptance letter? Seniors, are you listening to this? The rest of you who aren't seniors yet, man, you need to be thoughtful about this. Your church is going to be critical to your success. And praying to God and saying, God, help me see what I don't see is so helpful to you. It's relationship, it's direction. And here's the thing, I know some of you guys don't know, how, you don't know how to pray very well. I get that. That's a learned, it's a learned habit and discipline, which is why I love the fact that we're doing prayer on Saturdays. You guys are more than welcome to join us for that, and we're praying, and God is answering. God is answering our prayers. Find, find someone who you know prays well, and then spend time with them. And say, hey, let's pray together. Let me learn from you. Take them out for a lunch, and then spend some time after that praying, and then let them, let them lead you in that. Let them show you what they're doing. Here are things you need to ask for when you're making a big decision. Three things that you need to ask for when you're making a big decision. Obviously, the first thing you need to ask for is wisdom. Because there are things that, again, Scripture doesn't explicitly speak to. Scripture's not going to tell you, again, to get a civic versus a, an accord. Scripture does talk about being a good steward. Scripture does talk about making good investments, wise stewardship of your resources. You should ask for wisdom. Second thing you should ask for is remembrance. Remembrance. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but remembrance. You guys who have been at Compass for the, like your whole lives, you need to remember what you've been taught. There's a lot in there. And sometimes being a good Bible student is taking a bunch of different texts of Scripture and putting them all together in a way that's biblically accurate and helpful. Wisdom, remembrance, and number three, ask for godly desires. That will eliminate so much of your bad decisions. If you're asking God, give me the desire that's your desire, Give me the desire that's holy and righteous and pure and clean. Those are the kind of prayers that God wants to answer for you. I mean, those are the kind of prayers that God will reward and say, yep, this is what you need to do. Your leader will affirm that. Your parents will affirm that. I'll affirm that. Ask for godly desires, wisdom, remembrance, godly desires. That's under the umbrella of are you waiting on God in prayer? Going on, he continues and he says, he says this in verse 4 and 5. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you, I wait all the day long. One of the best gifts that you may not really appreciate right now. Someday you will, I think. I was thinking the other day, actually. I was driving to work and I was listening to some Bollywood. And I was, true story. <laughs> And I was thinking to myself, language is amazing. Like, isn't it just incredible? Like, these guys are making sounds and clicks that I don't even know what mean. they mean, but they're communicating. And I thought, what a brilliant and awesome gift of God to give us language. How cool is it that I'm speaking, like, sounds in the air, and you're like, oh, yeah, I understand what he's saying. 
amazing, right? Is your mind not blown? That's why, okay, Matt, Matt Fabares, that's why I always say, wow, because I'm really just impressed. <laughs> I'm really just in awe about how life works and how our creator designed things. Language. Wow. <laughs> So when the psalmist says, make me know your ways, which is in Hebrew, by the way, this is in English for us, another amazing feat. We're taking languages and translating them into our own language. Oh Lord, teach me your paths and your truth. Teach me. Think about it. You're reading, you're reading shapes on a white backdrop and those shapes are communicating truth to you. Your gift of literacy is amazing. What an incredible gift that you have. And so here's the thing. The gift of literacy should be stewarded in your life to know God's word inside and out. So question number three, let me put it to you like this. As the psalmist prays, make me know your ways, O Lord. Are you asking God according to his will? And I guess if you want to sneak another word in there, what I'm specifically talking about is his revealed will, not his secret will. His secret will is where you're asking, God, should I marry this person or that person? Should I go to this school or that school? His revealed will is don't lie, don't covet, um, the things that you read in scripture that are obvious to you, are you asking God according to his wheel? <laughs> will, not wheel. <laughs> will, a little tired still. <laughs> when I was, okay, so some of you guys already know this, but when I was uh, living in Norwalk, um, I would take my car and I would drive down the same road every time. And here's the thing, I knew that for the, like eight times out of 10, there was this motorcycle cop that would sit like on the corner that was hidden so that you would, you know, get busted if you were speeding or if you did something illegal. I was half awake when I did this. So I get to the intersection where I know he's there. Like I knew he was there, but that didn't change what I did. I made the fatal error of doing a California stop, which you know, right? California stop is when you stop, you slow down, take a look left, right, left again, and then just keep going. The, the intersection was clear of cars. It was not clear of the cop. He saw me. I saw him. We made eye contact. I smiled. And I said, you know, <laughs> he didn't show mercy for some reason. He, he pulled me over. And you know what? I didn't even fight it. I said, yeah, I know what I did. He says, okay, well, I'm going to write you a ticket. So I step out of the car and I sit on the curb. You know how people are shamed when they're sitting on the curb, they're just head down, you know. You see them sometimes, and you feel bad for them when you, when you know what that feels like. So I'm just sitting there. And I accepted the ticket freely, willingly. I didn't fight it. I went to court, and I paid the ticket. It was a lot of money, too. A lot of money. Anyway, I didn't fight it. I didn't ask for grace because I was guilty, and I knew it. But some of us are guilty of offending God and not knowing it. We have so much revealed in God's word, and yet we don't realize what he's made available to us because what we do, sometimes, and this happens when we read superficially, we read it, we forget it, and we don't think much about it. Here's the thing. When you want to know, God, should I do this or that or the other thing, your job is to say, okay, God, I want to know all of your, what all of your word has to say about this particular topic. So here's how you do this. When you say, God, what's your will on this subject? Your, your job is to scour scripture and say, okay, scripture, show me what, what you have to say about associations, if you're talking about dating. Scripture show me what you have to say about going to certain places and hanging out with certain people. Again, it really goes back to associations. Scripture, what do you have to say to me about buying a car? It doesn't say anything about the car, but it does have a lot to say, again, about stewardship. So your job is to say, God, what are you showing me here? Am I, am, I, am I looking at the right thing here? Help me understand. Am I asking according to your will? For instance, let's say you have, uh, you know, you're, you're working at uh, In-N-Out and you're making, let's just call it $12,000 a year. 
And you get this great idea after watching this YouTube channel where this guy reviews awesome, high-powered cars. You think, you know what? I, I want to buy a Ferrari. And so you decide, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put, I'm going to save my money for a down payment. I'm going to buy a Ferrari. Does scripture have anything to say about that? Well, not specifically, but it would be a very poor financial decision. I mean, common wisdom would suggest that, but so would your scriptures. Because your scripture would say that you're wasting money on things that are not appropriate for you. Now, let's just say, for instance, let's just change the scenario. Let's say you do become a CEO and you, you know, you, I don't know, you're, you're the next Jeff Bezos, except you're a Christian. <laughs> you're the next Jeff Bezos or Jeffra Bezos, if you're a girl, I guess. Um, and you're making bajillions of dollars a year. In that scenario, would it be okay for you to buy a Ferrari? You might have a case to make. I, I, I wouldn't throw a rock at you if you said, you know what, I'm going to buy a Ferrari that's only a drop in the bucket of the billions of dollars that I have. I might ask you other questions like, well, what are you doing with the rest of your money? Are you giving to your local church? Are you stewarding those resources well? And if you, as a bajillion dollar, you know, a year earner, has said, I want to spend $100 million on this Ferrari, then okay, go, go do it, I guess. If your conscience is clear and that's what you want to do, then, then fantastic. But the situation is entirely different, you understand. When you're asking God according to his will, you're saying, God, what does your Bible teach me about this? Which means, here's another thing. If you just got saved this week, you got to be in your Bible. You got to be in your Bible. You got to know it. You got to study it. You got to memorize it. And here's what I don't want you to do. My baby girl, Carissa, she's adorable. She is in the, the terrible two stage where she loves uh, eating junk food and, and almost nothing else, basically. There are some grandparents in our lives who like to feed her the junk food and thus make our job harder. Don't be those grandparents. But imagine if we, her parents, said, you know what, it's totally fine. She loves donuts. We're just going to let her eat donuts for the rest of her life. She loves donuts. Can't help it. The girl wants what she wants. I'm pretty sure CPS would come and arrest us for, for negligence or at least some kind of abuse because no child should live off of donuts alone. And yet some of us, some of us are living off of biblical donuts. Like, I really like the Psalms. I'm just going to read the Psalms, and I'm going to kind of skip Second Chronicles because it's really dense, and I'm not quite sure what's going on. Leviticus is super, th I'm not, well, the animal and the people, what's going on, the blood, and, the, and some really weird stuff about what guys and the girls, and I don't want to read that. That's too hard. Let me just go to the Proverbs and Psalms and, and eat some of that. That feels a lot better to my stomach. Let me tell you, wrong move, wrong move. I'm going to call CPS on all y'all for treating yourselves like bad kids. <laughs> You need to have a regular diet of the entire Word of God. You have to make it so that you're going systematically from A to Z, from Genesis to Revelation, often, which is why we have this awesome Bible reading program that we do together as a church family. We don't do that just to be disciplined and act like you know, Christian Marines. We do it because we know that all of God's Word is inspired. All of God's Word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Asking God according to His will means you got to know His will. So young Christian, if you're a baby Christian, get in the Bible. We, on our Instagram, uh, on our links, you'll see a link for Read the Bible with us. That'll take you to the app that we're using. We'd love to have you join us there. That would be a great place for you to go. And then we see each other's highlights and likes and things like that. That's really cool. Um, if you're a, a faithful Christian who's been doing it for a while now, let me challenge you with this. You don't know the Bible as well as you think you do. So take large portions of it and read it and like, like feast on it. It's like what I do when I go to that Agora, that, that Brazilian barbecue place. Like I feast on the steak. I just sit there. I get the meat sweats. You need to get the Bible sweats. Feasting on the Bible. Memorize large chunks. Memorize. 
I think Peng's group started to memorize some of the, some, I think, second Tim, Tim, Titus? Titus. Did you guys finish it? No. Start and finish a book of the Bible memorizing it. Step up your biblical game. Is there ever any time wasted in knowing God's will? No. Study it every day. Tan it. Then always and now it. Sometimes when people get saved, um, they go through this thing called cage stage. You know what that's about? Um, <laughs> cage stage Calvinism. People are converted to a specific way of thinking about God and his will. They go through this season where they're like, oh, I just want to tell everybody about a specific doctrinal position, and they attack people with it. I would say that one of the ways to offset that is by knowing Jesus and his word. I mean, Jesus is the preeminent teacher about how God is faithful to save and sovereignly call people to himself. The Gospel of John is all about that. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't go cage stage Calvinist on people. You can avoid that if you know what I'm talking about. So third question you ask, are you asking God according to his will? Okay, next few sections here, there's quite, a, there's quite a bit. So verses 6 and 7, and then 16 through 22. So let's read through this together. I'll offer some brief commentary, and I promise we'll, be, we'll continue on pretty swiftly here. Okay, verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. They've always been around, Lord. You, you know what I'm talking about. Your mercy and your love endure all the time. He says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So he's turning and says, Lord, I, I know I've had sins of my youth and perhaps even present day sins that are putting a block between you and me, but I'm asking you, God, please forgive me. I love this. He continues on in verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So notice here, he's not pretending that he's right with God perfectly. He's saying, God, I realize that I'm a sinner, that I have things that I need to work out with you. Please forgive me of those things. Verse 19. Consider how many are my foes. Look at all my enemies. And with what violent hatred they hate me. Verse 22. Oh, excuse me, 20. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you, God. I'm trusting in you. I am following you. Verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Turns to the corporate Israel and says, Redeem us, Lord. Protect us. Care for us. We might be guilty in your sight, but we're looking for you. We're seeking you out. We're asking for, uh, for forgiveness. And sometimes I think in the day-to-day -day of the Christian life, you may not realize all of the varied ways in which you sin against God. Question number four you need to ask is, are you asking with a clean heart? Are you asking with a clean heart? That is to say, when you approach God and you're asking for direction, is there anything between you and God that you haven't confessed yet? We know that to become a Christian, it's repentance and faith, right? You, you get right with God by turning from sin and trusting Christ. Sometimes we forget that that repentance needs to be reapplied day by day. It's when Jesus talked to Peter and said, Peter, you're already clean, but I need to wash your feet. That's a whole transaction there. That's what, it need, that's what it means for us to have a clean heart. You're not perfect. You're never going to be perfect. That should humble you, first of all. But second, that means you need to step before God and daily take stock. Okay, so let me go back to the prayer one for a minute. Um, A-C-T-S, Acts Prayer, right? You guys have heard of that one. The uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Those are uh, fancy words for uh, adoration, worshiping God, confession, telling God that you're sorry for certain sins, thanksgiving, thanksgiving. Uh, supplication, asking God for what you want and need. So when you come before God and you have this massive decision in front of you, 
you might have a perfectly legitimate question that God can answer for you, but because you've been watching so much porn and doing it by yourself and not confessing it, there may be a problem with you and God that hasn't been reconciled yet. Maybe you as a Christian have been living in sin and have not been right before God. Or maybe you as a gal have been envious of all these girls on on Instagram that you see with perfect this and perfect that and so much of this and so much of that and you don't have any of it and now now I wish I was that way or whatever else it is. Maybe you're gossiping or, or maybe you've been greedy or whatever it is. You have something between you and God that needs to be fixed before God is willing to say, hey, I'm gonna open up the doors of wisdom to you. It's a willingness to say, God, I'm wrong, please help me. Now, let me tell you guys, I, I've been doing this thing for a little bit now, and i could pretty sure I could speak for your mature leaders in the faith who have been doing this for a long time. There's not a day that goes by where I'm like, man, I blew it. A careless word. I mean, I mean just yesterday I said something, and I'm like, I should not have said that. Words were leaving my mouth, and I'm saying, come back. <laughs> they left. They left. A certain look that I gave somebody, a, a certain way of speaking that was inappropriate and uh, uncharitable. And you know what I had to do? I had to close my door, drop my blinds, and then I had to confess. And then I had to ask God to help me change, which is hard, right? Anyone know what it's like to say, I need to change this? You know it's hard. It's not easy. But that's the thing. That's the thing about being right with God. It means recognizing that every single day of our lives, you're broken, and that God is in the process of fixing you, restoring you, and making you more like his son. A humble heart, a willing heart is going to look at ourselves and say, Lord, I, I man, I did not do what I should have done. Will you please forgive me again? And that's part of being directed by God. God appreciates that. He says he'll, he'll show his face to the humble. Humble people know their sin. You're asking God with a clean heart. James says this in verse, chapter 5, verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Righteous, of course, are those who are righteous in Christ, not righteous by perfect works. or those who are living out their righteousness that Christ has accomplished for them. And here's the thing. You never grow out of repentance and faith. You never grow out of that. In these remaining verses, the prayer ends like this. He says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Again, he's talking about the, the congregation of Israel. We know, we, we know we're sinners, but he instructs us because he's good and he's upright, because he's forgiven us. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right. That's a key phrase there. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and, and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord, this is awesome, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and make known to them his covenant. And he makes known to them his covenant. Verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord and he will pluck my feet out of the net. Okay, there's a lot here, but what I want to bring to your attention is back in verse 11. Verse 11, he says this, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Actually, that's not the one I want to bring to you. Uh, Verse 10, sorry, right before that, verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Here's Here's what the psalmist is saying. Here's what David's saying in shorthand. 
The Lord gives favor to those who take what they already know and apply it. The covenant in his testimony. The Lord is showing grace and mercy to those who say, I know what you say about this. I'm going to do this. The Lord is looking graciously upon that. The last question you need to ask yourself is, are you submitting to what you already know? You guys know a lot. Are you submitting to that? It's one thing to say, yeah, God, I know what your word says. It's a whole other to say, God, I'm obeying what your word says. Those are two different realities. Are you submitting to what you already know? When you're asking God questions about what to do next and how to apply, uh, who to date, what, to, what, to, what you're asking for direction for, if you want God to lead you, you need to be asking yourself, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing already? Or is there some elements of my life that I'm just simply ignoring or not obeying because whatever reason it is? I'm teaching my kids right now, and slowly but surely, I'm teaching my kids how to play guitar. So I'm teaching them, I don't, I'm not a guitar you know, maestro or anything, I'm not Ian or... Adam or whoever else, but I do know a few things. So I'm teaching them the E chord and the A chord and the D chord, just some basic stuff. And so I taught them E and I said, okay, learn E. And then when you learn E and it sounds good, come back to me and I'll teach you A. And when you learn that and you, it sounds good, come back to me and I'll teach you D. Just to kind of give them something to work towards so that they're, they're not just kind of skipping stuff just to kind of throw it in there. And so I taught them E. And then that evening, one of my sons was like, can you show me the next one now? I'm like, well, this one doesn't even sound good. Your E is terrible. Come on, go back and fix this. Make this sound better. And then I'll teach you A. And then so he, you know, one of those things. And so he's like, can I do A now? So anyway, long story short, he's asking to, to, to learn this advanced techniques before he's learned the basics. It's the whole idea of learning to run, walk before you run. Some of you guys saw that I was taking Jacob around Murrieta campus. I was letting him drive the golf cart. It's terrified, <laughs> but I played it cool. I was sitting in the passenger seat, just kind of bracing myself for impact. And he only crashed once. So there's that. <laughs> But the whole time that we were driving, I was having him only half press the accelerator for obvious reasons. Right? Jacob, you, you, can't, you can't, no pedal to the metal, dude. You got to learn to drive before you kill us both and send us into the lake. <laughs> so he drove half speed all the way around campus. It's learning to walk before you run. If you're asking God questions that are, you know, uh, AP questions, and you haven't passed the, you know, the undergrad or the underclassmen classes yet, you need to figure out the first ones. Get the basics right. Are you praying and reading your Bible? Let's just start with that. <laughs> Are you submitting to what you already know? If you're not doing those two basic, fundamental, regular, run-of-the-mill exercises, then when you're asking God to lead you in some complex moral quandary, it's no doubt that you feel like you're lost out at sea, unmoored, because you don't have the foundation and the grounding of prayer and Bible reading. Are you submitting to what you already know? Here's the thing, guys. God is not like us. And therefore, here's what I can promise you. As you read the Bible, God will make you very uncomfortable. Not the least of which because some of the things that he talks about are super uncomfortable, like, well, never mind. There's some things that he says that are super uncomfortable. Um, but if you're not challenged by what you're reading in God's word, it's because you're picking and choosing. Let me tell you that. Even as an older guy, I still read the Bible and I find stuff that just challenges me to the core and say, man, I, I don't know how to think about this. I need, to, I need to stop. I need to pray. I need to search the scriptures and make sure that I'm understanding this right. God will challenge you. And if you're not being challenged by God, it's because you're not reading deeply enough. You're superficially reading. You're not seeing that there's challenges, real challenges in the word because of who God is. He's not like us. Some of us are more apt to change, God word, change God's word to fit our desires. Some of us use good theology in bad ways. For instance, God will save who he wants, so I don't need to evangelize. 
If God is sovereign and he's going to save anyone he wants to save, he's going to save the elect. I've got good theology on this. Ephesians chapter one tells me that. If he's going to save the elect, then I don't need to worry about that. I've got a pass to say, I don't need to talk to people about Jesus. What's wrong with that? The problem is that God doesn't give you that option. He says, I am sovereign and you need to go tell people about the gospel. You, you are willing subjects of this kingdom, and therefore I want to use you to spread my message all across the globe. And in fact, in my sovereign purposes, I'm going to use you as the willing instruments to get more people in these doors of his kingdom. Or here's another one, another one using God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, therefore it doesn't matter if I pray. Talk about a thought from hell. It does matter. It does matter. And God wants you to pray. He says he, he binds himself in some way. I don't understand it. Here's the thing. This is another challenge. I don't fully get it. I admit this fully. I don't fully get it. But he says, when you pray, I do things differently. Did he already know he was going to do things? Absolutely he did. But he says, I want you to pray. That's, that's part of how I'm going to do things differently. So when, I, when, when you don't pray, God says, I'm not going to do things that I plan. I don't get how he does. I don't get it. I don't fully get it. But I can say he tells us to pray and things change. He says, if you don't pray, things don't change. He says, I'm sovereign and I'm going to accomplish my purposes. And yet he says, when you don't pray, I, things aren't going to happen the way they're supposed to. I, you know, one of those things. That's a theological term. Memorize that one. But here's the thing. He tells us to do that. Are you submitting to what you already know? That's where to start, young people. Faith is taking what has been already revealed to us and applying it to what hasn't been revealed to us. It's saying, okay, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do with the car and the girlfriend and the college and, you know, whatever else you want to do. But it's saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm waiting on you. I'm going to submit to what I already know. So there you have it. Five questions. And if you just come to the faith for the first time, these questions all apply to exactly where you are right now. As a young one who's just recently found salvation in Christ, really it's looking at your entire life and saying, okay, Lord, I need to seek your glory first. No, Lord, I want to be a man or a woman of prayer, and I want to ask good things according to your revealed will in your word. And I want nothing to separate us, God, so I'm going to be a young man or a woman of repentance. I'm going to confess my sin and not conceal it. And then when I learn what you teach me in your word, I want to be someone who does it. I don't want to be a silly person who looks in the mirror, realizes he has a boogie, and then walks away. And then everyone's looking at the boogie on your face all day. The wise person looks in the mirror, takes care of the boogie, and then goes away looking a lot better. That's the kind of people we want to be. Boogie cleaning people. So whether you're starting a new walk or whether you have an old walk, these are just fundamental principles about learning how to have your life guided by God's hand. I know some of you guys are really excited about this week, seeing how God has moved, getting excited. You know, one of the coolest things I saw at Revival, um, I was in the back for much of what we were doing just because I'm running stuff, so I have to kind of keep an eye out, but just seeing you guys worship unreservedly, that was cool. There are a few things that warm my heart. Then to see you guys say, I don't care what anyone's thinking about me right now. I'm just going to worship God. I'm going to sing loud. I sound terrible. That's fine. I love God anyway. He loves me. I'm going to rest in the fact that Jesus accepts me and doesn't take my pitch against me. Uh, I love that. I love that. Here's the thing, guys. Revival was last week, but revival can continue. Revival doesn't have to stop with Murrieta. In fact, revival can continue on by us being faithful to follow the basics, to follow the basics and to say, you know what? We're not going to be content with the same old, same old. When it comes time to go back on your campuses and to live out your faith, this is a season where you can choose to live out your faith and see God do great things 
Or you can cower in the background and just hope that things don't hurt. We're going to be here most Saturdays until I don't even know when. I know Student Ministers is on the horizon trying to figure out what to do, but Saturdays we're going to pray together. I would love for you to be part of that because I know God listens to prayers. He's going to listen to our desire to see salvation wrought in South Orange County and at your schools. And I want you to be part of that. I don't want you to miss out on that. Let's apply the basics. Let's beg God to send revival. And let's be part of the solution to that answer or that prayer. This year is going to be different, your North. I feel it. I know we're not supposed to be feely, touchy, that kind of thing. But there was just something different this week. And I've got great expectations for what this means for the rest of the school year. So let's pray and ask God to do awesome things. Let's close out.